RX bar. One of our favorites, Scott. Our favorite things to show up in the mail when we order them is an RX bar. Yep, and I got to say my favorite is the blueberry. I love the blueberry. Well, you can love blueberry while I'm loving on maple sea salt. And when those big chunks of salt hit with that sweet maple, I'm in heaven. I find that when I'm traveling, I would prefer to eat one of those and a beverage instead of going to the hotel cheap free breakfast. That's what I do. <laughs> well, there's more nutrition. You're getting good real food in an RX bar. In the cheap free breakfast, you're getting something cheap and free. The thing about RX bar, it has all of the good stuff, none of the BS. It even says it on the label, Freeman. Um, the protein they use is out of egg whites. Egg whites, as we know, are very easily absorbed by your body. Good, solid protein, nothing bad in them. And when to eat it, I mean, before run, during run, after run, any time is the right time. Snacks for kids, snack for your favorite person. They have lots of yummy, yummy flavors, despite the fact that you like yours and I like mine. We like to mix it up a little bit. And now some, something else to argue about, nut butter, Scott. They're coming out with vanilla, almond, peanut butter, and honey cinnamon in the squeeze tube. You just rip it open and squeeze it, and you've got yourself you could spread a it on a, You could spread it on some toast if you want. That's an idea, a liquid RX bar. You can get 25% off your first order of the best seller variety pack by visiting rxbar.com slash TRN, enter the code TRN at checkout. It's only valid for U.S. customers, and it's only valid one time. Pathprojects.com. We are excited to announce the collaborative T-shirt with Path Projects. They've been a great partner, and we've, we went for a run with them the other day, kind of. I went for more of a hobble. <laughs> Don went for a run. You know, when they said we have the collab shirt, I didn't want to be look the fool. I didn't know what collab meant. I, I thought it was like an animal or something. <laughs> you didn't know it was an abbreviation? No. For collaborative? Anyway, the collaborative t-shirt is limited edition. It's available for just for a short time. It's called the Rockies Three-Quarter Raglan Tee. I call it cool, and it fits and looks good. So it's one of those. It's a three-quarter length sleeve. It has the Trail Runner Nation logo on the front. Um, it's made out of the great comfortable fabric. And we learned a lot, Scott. We sat with the owner, Scott, there, and we talked about the care that he takes into finding the right materials. And, and he went down to the micro elements in those fibers of how they wick and how they happen. And he's put a lot of thought where to put the seams, what kind of seams. He's really thought about this. Yeah, he, he went over a lot of technical terms that went over both of our heads. <laughs> All we know is it feels great. It wears great. It's it's very uh, well put together. It's going to last a long time. It doesn't smell as much as some of the other stuff that I have. So, <laughs> but there's more than just three-quarter length, super cool jersey shirts. They also make baseliner shorts of different varieties so you look good on the trail. Or if you're going somewhere afterwards, you can wear them and look like you fit in. I have found that the hoodie is one of my favorite pieces of gear. Oh my gosh, I love that thing. The thumb holes in the watch slit, those are awesome. And it just fits nice and looks good. My son came home from college for a few days and he said, hey dad, where did you get that hoodie? That's awesome. I think I want one for Christmas. And I think he said something similar about the hat. I think he's taking <laughs> he did, all your gear. He did say something about the hat too. The limited edition... Um, Trail Runner Nation Collaborative T is also available in extra small and extra large, which they've expanded the, the size range for this T-shirt. So if there's some women out there, the extra small is equivalent to a women's medium from what they tell us. You can always go to their pathprojects.com store or 
to pathprojects.com forward slash TRN or a link from our partners page. Three ways to get there. It's easy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of the wide, worldwide ultra running community, you are listening to nothing less than the greatest trail running nation podcast on earth. It is the Trail Runner Nation podcast. There's a bunch of like old brothel hookers like buried out here. Yeah, thank you, Don. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. You know, you sound like a nice guy on this podcast, but... Uh, um, <laughs> but I know it's on the upper edge, and you guys have won a couple of awards. And Okay, we'll clear that up. That will, our, our, the, the group of the nation and podcast downloaders are very sophisticated. <laughs> they are. They're unlike any other group out there. They're tolerant. They, they uh, ignore our many imperfections, and they'll be able to substitute the word. No problem. <laughs> they will. All right. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. Welcome to another edition of Trail Runner Nation. My name is Don Freeman. I am Scott War, and... And I'm Andy Jones Wilkins, and we are thrilled today to have Sebastian Younger here on the podcast. You might recall a few months back, uh, the three of us did a, did a podcast on his great book, Tribe, and uh, and we were so keen on on the book and on our discussion of the book that we reached out to Sebastian to see if he wanted to be on the podcast. And one thing led to another. And here he is. So, Sebastian Younger, welcome to Trail Runner Nation. Thank you very much. Hey, and, and one thing we found out that was actually really interesting is Sebastian's a runner. He, he's part he's part of our tribe. Well, you, you know, you, you can identify a tribesman, a fellow tribes person, just, when, just at a short glance. There's something quick and easy to spot in a, in a fellow runner. So welcome, Sebastian. Hey, thank you. It's nice to be talking to you guys. Tell, tell us a little bit about your, uh, your running career. How, how did you get into it? Uh, well, I was, a, I was a new kid in, in, in sophomore year in high school, in, in 10th grade, and uh, I usually played soccer, and I just thought I would. There was a cross country race, and I thought I would. I'd never run before, and I two and a half miles. I just thought I would jump into it and see what happened, and um, and I won it, and uh, and I just started running, and I, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I won all my races that fall, and I mean, I was competing in like against. I was in a private school and competing against other private schools, so I, you know, it wasn't that significant but it, it you know it felt really good i clearly was sort of talented at it and um that following spring uh i think i was 15 i, I, I a week before the boston marathon i thought oh, maybe i'll try and run the marathon i lived in boston so i think i ran four miles i think four miles eight miles 12 miles 20 miles and i took a day off and then ran the marathon it was something ridiculous <laughs> like that but i finished it i ran like 20 or something and and uh and I, you know, running just became incredibly important, probably too important in some ways. You know, it was the core of my identity, and I, I needed it a little bit too desperately. Oh, well, that's perfect. And we have uh, we have Sebastian Younger's training program: four, eight, twelve, twenty. Do the marathon. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, Sebastian, I I wanted to jump right in here. Um, I mentioned in the intro that we we had a great discussion on tribe and 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 as a result, uh, all three of us went down our our various rabbit holes in in studying um, uh, tribalism and 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 its intersection with the work that that you've done and and I happened upon a TED talk you did a few years back 
And um, and you let slip that uh, in your academic career, you wrote, I, I believe it was a thesis, master's thesis, not sure, on the long distance runners of the Navajo Nation. Is that right? That's right. So I ran through, um, you know, through high school. I think I ran 420-something for the mile, something like that, 430 maybe. Got to college, cross-country track. The, you know, like I said, it was very much part of my identity. And by, I was an anthropology major, and I'd heard that there were amazing long-distance runners on the Navajo Reservation, that it was part of an old tradition. Um, and so I, I went out there, and I spent a summer training with their best runners, um, at the time, it was 1983, I think it was. Um, at the time, the best Navajo runner was a guy named Alvin Begay, who was just phenomenally talented. And um, I think he beat Pat Porter, who was a great cross-country runner back in the day uh, in Colorado Springs, like in the early 80s. He just, like, wiped him out. And Pat Porter was world-class. So Alvin, you know, he never really got off the reservation much, but he was – world-class runner and and so i was in i was in those circles and we were running up in the canyons and out you know six seven thousand feet i was doing probably 100 mile weeks out there living in a little trailer and doing my anthropological research and i you know i eventually wrote a uh, i got back to to school for my senior year um extremely fit and uh and i and i wrote a thesis on navajo long distance running traditions and its current form uh sort of competitive track and cross country and, and I got honors for it and that's really started me as a journalist. You know, I got out of college and I did construction for a while and kept running. I was sponsored by a shoe company, I was sponsored by Etonic and um <laughs> and uh I but I didn't have much of a plan and I, and I thought, well the thesis that's probably pretty close to what journalism's like. You know, you go somewhere, you research something, write about it, maybe I'll be a journalist. And that sort of set me on my um somewhat somewhat haphazard path. The the uh, the concept of tribe seems to, it seems like you were a great uh, prophet or predictor of terms because you got your book out there and all of a sudden the entire world starts using the term in its in its normal phrasing of the day to describe e- either different politicians or different just subgroups within a community. You seem to be perfect on timing with your with your book. Did you forecast that, or do you feel like you had something to do with that? With that change in our in our dialogue, I uh, you know I think that word would have um, kind of lurched into our consciousness either way. Uh, I should say that, in the sense that I mean it. So my book is called Tribe. It could have been called Community, but no one would buy a book called Community, right? right. Tribe <laughs> is a much more potent word, right? But it, really, what I'm talking about is the fact that humans have adapted over hundreds of thousands of years, mostly to live in small, intimate. Uh, groups of 30, 40, 50 people, 100 people, maybe 200 people, not big numbers, right? That's as a, We're social primates, and that's what we evolved for. And psychologically, we do very well in groups of that size, and um, which is one of the reasons that soldiers have a hard time getting out of the military, because they're transitioning out of a uh, out of a small unit, like a platoon or a company, back into wide-open society, and, then, and that's hard, right? And so... That's what I mean by tribe. It's a group of people that you live with, function with, depend on, survive with. That's really the meaning of the word tribe. When people use it now, they mean it sort of more metaphorically. They mean this is the group of people that I have a shared interest in, a share, shared concerns, 
that I identify that I identify with. Your quote tribe might be spread all over the country, um, but it's it's the it's the group that you identify with, and so that in a, in a traditional sense isn't actually your tribe because you're not depending on these people for your survival. You you, you have a you have a shared interest in them. It might be your political tribe, whatever it is. And those kinds of groups can be um, very, very, very positive and constructive, or as we've seen in politics recently, they can be pretty vicious and live in a kind of binary world of, you know, it's our way or the highway. And, and so the word itself um, can you sometimes use that word and people wince, or sometimes use that word and people smile, because they're very, it has very, very different connotations. One, one of my questions um, as, as I was making notes reading the book is, and I think you may have answered it, but can you become part of a virtual tribe? So if someone, uh, you know, we're a trail running group, and that's the tribe that we're talking about specifically on this podcast, can someone that lives out in the middle of, of Wyoming that doesn't have any running friends, can they feel part of a tribe virtually with some other people around the country or around the world? Good question. Yeah, I mean, again, if you if you take the word tribe metaphorically, not literally, metaphorically, um, in, in, in other words, it, it's a group of people with a shared interest, shared concerns, shared hopes. Then absolutely, right? I, I, but 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 you're at a very conceptual level there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have someone who is physically by themselves identifying with uh, a group of people that they may never even meet. Uh, that does not provide the emotional and physical, psychological security of a group of human beings who are physically around you, right? And, mm-hmm. and much less a group of human beings that you depend on for your life and your sustenance and your livelihood. I mean, that is the ancient sense of the word. That's not happening online, I'm sorry, right? But, but that doesn't mean there's no value to it. Um, it's just that you, have, you would, at that point, have to put the word... I would say you should really put the word tribe in sort of quotes in some ways. What do you think about, uh, as I was thinking about tribe, and, and Scott just mentioned a virtual tribe that maybe nationwide and, and they, their, their trailhead is actually Facebook or something. But what about when we show up and we gather together on a, on, on a common mission to get from the starting point to the end point? We all put the same bibs on and we all go across the same trail. What about that tribe? I think there's a tribe that forms for the sake of strength and endurance to get through on a race day. It, you know, uh, they, they, they show up as a tribe. What do you think of that, Sebastian? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, w- what we know is that people, human connection gets stronger with adversity. So adversity gives rise to human connection. And one of the problems with modern society, I mean... <laughs> It's also a good thing, obviously, but one of, one of the problematic things about it is that um, it, technology has basically protected us from most of the danger and adversity that typified life in our ancestral past, right? So you don't wake up every morning wondering where your next meal is going to come from, if you're going to get attacked by a predator today. I mean, those are just not foremost concerns, right? So, so as adversity rises, human connection increases and gets stronger, um, which leaves the person in the sort of living in the cul-de-sac in the suburb, sort of bereft of a feeling of community because he doesn't. Need, they don't need other people to survive, right? So in a in a in a situation like a race, particularly 
some of the longer races, like ultramarathons, where it's as much you against the, 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 the distance as it, is, as it is you against other people. Um, in that situation, it's so hard, it's so difficult, that very, very strong bonds can form, even during the short amount of time, um, the hours or the days that you're engaged in this. Like, very, very strong bonds can form. But again, it's a product of adversity and hardship and suffering. And those things make human connection extremely strong. And, and I'll agree with that because some of the best friends that I have have been people that I've met on the trail that we went through a rough section or a rough afternoon or just a rough race. And, and we ended up becoming very tight and we trusted one another yeah. and we relied on one another and we, we honor and cherish that relationship. And at the end of the day, you exchanged information and, and committed to doing it again, <laughs> as miserable as it was, committed to doing mm-hmm. that again because we enjoyed it so much and enjoyed the company. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is that that kind of hardship generates human connection. Had had you guys met, um, I don't know, in some situation that was a lot more comfortable and and unchallenging, you might not have formed those bonds. And and you know, basically, you, the way you can think of it is that the worse the situation, the better people act. And by better, I mean they connect, they connect more quickly and more strongly with other people, and they're willing to give up their own personal interest, um, their their own personal um, advantage for the sake of other people and of the group and basically the pro-social behavior behavior so the the worse the situation the more the pro-social behaviors take over which makes sense because those pro-social behaviors uh heroism generosity selflessness all those things um are are required if a group is going to survive whatever it may be an attack by the enemy a hurricane whatever it is those pro-social behaviors are very very adaptive for survival yeah. Um, I have a question for you. Can you, is, is it possible to belong to multiple tribes at the same time? Well, only if you use the word tribe in, in a metaphorical sense. In the quotes? Um, I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, if you go back to the sort of original idea, I mean, you, 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 of, of a tribe is the community of people that I survive with. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't both be Comanche and Apache, right? I mean, you're one or the other. Right. Um, and uh, I can't both live in New York City and in San Francisco. I, I mean, I, I, it's, one, it's really one or the other, no matter how much I visit somewhere else. So, so in that sense, you, you, only, in a, only in a metaphorical sense could you belong to these multiple – I mean, I'm just going to call them interest groups is essentially what they are. Okay. And so, so, <clears throat> Go ahead, Andy. Sebastian, one of the one of the things that um, long distance ultra running is facing, and has for about the last decade, is is tremendous growth. And the the sport that I came of age in 25 years ago, with a uh, hundred people in a race and a a guy with a stopwatch at a campground, uh, has grown into you know multi million dollar sponsorships and and the like and and races like Western States and Hard Rock that have you know, less than a 1% chance uh, for runners to get into. So our tribe, if you will, in the metaphorical sense, yeah. has really grown way beyond that psychological comfort number of 50 or 100. And yet you have the elders of our sport, uh, and I count myself as one of those, who, who at the same time as I long for those days of the, uh, of the small tribal run out in the in the redwoods of california i also acknowledge that the growth and expansion of this wonderful activity 
that we all love uh, is 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 great. It's great for all of us. Uh, and I and I find myself struggling with, uh, you know, going back and forth between the uh, kids these days type of old curmudgeon <laughs> attitude uh, versus, right. you know, let's come one, come all. We're an egalitarian activity. What do you know from all of your work, and particularly as an anthropologist, of when that when that growth point becomes so large that you're not able to maintain that strong bond and sense of community? How have how have tribes adapted? Well, yeah, I mean that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean I know from like startups in Silicon Valley or whatever, like that that the 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 um, that the small company, the small struggling company that's trying to make it you know, with four or five guys involved and they're working 18 hours a day or whatever, um, that's when everyone is the most cohesive and the, the relationships are the least problematic. And then it's a, and it's a big problem. You know, once you make it and all of a sudden now you've got 100 employees, now you have 1,000 employees, um, then that's when the problems start. And, and, uh, that, and that sort of roughly parallel, parallels modern society. I mean, you know, we, like I said, we, we have eliminated most of the adversities and hardships are of our evolutionary past we live in a mass a mass society of thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people it's a very very successful society right but one of the things we've lost is that intimate sense of struggle and com and community and connection um so you know what i would say is that th there's no as you scale up you lose intimacy there's no way to have the same level of intimacy with 3,000 people as you do with 30 people. It's not happening. That doesn't mean you don't have any connection, right? But it's just not realistic to think that you can have that close fraternal human bonds with a, with a group of people that you, most of whom you don't know personally. It's just, but so, so you, you know, basically you have to you get one you, you get one thing which is a massively successful sport and a, a lot of the things that come with that but you, nothing's for free you have to give something up for that and so it's a you know do you want to go back to those early days maybe you would i don't know but i don't think that's a choice that in general in general modern society really has i don't think there's any way to go back and i think for a situation like you guys going back to those early days um Although it's sort of tempting, I think you would register. That you're, you'd be giving up an awful lot to do that. And you might, in the end, choose not to. You know, as, as I look at, uh, I need a little help uh, defining community and tribe. Because when I think of the running community, I might think of it as all-encompassing. You know, the runners that do maybe uh, the 50K, the 100-mile. Maybe I think of the aid station workers. Maybe I think of the race director. These are individual tribes within a community. Would that be an accurate way of looking at it, or or do you have a better a better definition for me? Well, again, I mean, the, the sort of most ancient sense of that word is the group of people that you wake up with in the morning and survive with, right? So we're not talking about that right now. We're using the word tribe in a more metaphorical sense. And, uh, you know, I would say you're really talking about people that you have a, a strong affiliation with, a strong identification with, very powerful shared interests, right? So um, that, and that, that can encompass all, that can encompass people that you don't know very well that do, that do something different than what you do, right? I mean, you might run 50 milers, not 200 milers, and maybe you're not a race director, maybe, you would have, but you all have a similar, similar values, similar goals, similar interests. And that puts you within a kind of community. And, um, 
but again, it's it's one that's extremely fluid and 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 in some ways quite conceptual because you are not necessarily directly involved in each other's lives. There might be people in this group you've never even met. You know, in in today's society, we find that you know we're not relying on our neighbor or whatever our our, our immediate. Um, people we live around for our sustenance or our survival. Do you find that in today's society that people are more likely not to belong to a tribe and just exist outside because there's no struggle, there's no, you don't have to worry about putting food on the table? And and, and if that's the case, is there a danger in that? I think I, I, re- I remember a quote in your book that said, a lone primate is a dead primate because, you know, they just uh, they're they're more um, dependent vulner- vulnerable. Yeah. yeah, we're pretty weak and yeah, soft. Yeah, I mean, we're, yeah, we're I mean we're social primates and we're wired to be that way because individual humans do not survive alone in nature. They die almost immediately. People, humans survive and thrive because we work very well in groups. Mm-hmm. And the sort of miracle. The puzzling miracle of modern society is that we've now made groups out of 300, 400 million people, like the population of the United States, that, that you know, f- functions as a, as a group. I mean, there might be conflicts within it, but, but we're, you know, we're, whatever, we're a, we're a country and we exist as a country. So that's new in the human experience. And um, so what I would say is that in a mass, in a modern mass society like the one we live in, Precisely because you do not need your neighbors to survive. I mean, it, it, for for hundreds of thousands of years, the people you woke up near in the morning were your people, right? Yeah. That's no longer true. You might not even know your neighbors. You might not like your neighbors. You certainly don't need them to put food on the table, uh, or to defend yourself, right? The police do that. Um, so that means that you this this human connection that we're wired for is going unfulfilled because it's not needed. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a, that there's not something missing, that people don't identify a lack in their lives. And so I would say they go out of their way to join groups, you know, you know, motorcycle, like motorcycle groups or running groups or political groups or sports teams or even fans of sports teams or whatever. It could be, I mean, stamp collecting. I mean, it could be almost anything. You know, people are clearly driven by the desire to um, – identify with the group, affiliate with a group of people um, who have shared values, shared goals. That's clearly a very basic human human desire. And the, the interesting thing about modern society is because is that because we don't get that from our immediate, our immediate surround our, our immediate community around us, we have to go go looking for it in a more conceptual way, um, such as runners. You know, um, Sebastian, I know that if I was like you said, we don't. If we're in a cul-de-sac and we don't know our neighbor to the left or the right, really no big deal because we have a lock on the door. We can call somebody if we need help, and they can come <laughs> in. I, I mean, I mean, Amazon Prime is two days away, and I've got a life raft. So I mean, <laughs> things are okay. Right. Right. But if I was on my own out in the middle of some place, I would be very quick that very night, yeah. the first night, to introduce myself to find out who's to my left and to my right to make sure that I had that security. Do you think because, like Scott had said, the world is really, really soft and easy these days, that we look towards ultramarathons and we look towards kayaking trips, we look to be rock climbers to 
somehow innately plug back into that DNA that says there should be struggle in life, and we want struggle, and there's happiness with struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the truth is struggle makes people feel good as long as they overcome the adversity. If you, if, you, if you succumb to the adversity, it doesn't feel very good, right? So the presumption is that you, that you set yourself a challenge that you're reasonably, reasonably confident that you'll overcome, and particularly if it's a challenge that involves a community, I mean, other people of some sort that you can affiliate with. And, and that, that satisfies all of these basic human needs, these sort of psychological needs that we have. And, again, these needs are there because they're adaptive, because if you fulfill those needs, you're safer, you're better off than if, you, if they remain unfulfilled. And um, I would add that in a situation of great danger, um, you know, a hurricane, tornadoes, forest fire, you know, whatever, anything – any of the things that can even be visited upon modern society, um, that people people reach out to the to their neighbors and, and to the folks around them very very quickly. We all intuitively know that if we go through this by ourselves, we're screwed. Like we really need other people, even if it's just to borrow up, um, a, you know, a liter of cooking oil because we ran out of oil and we need to cook. You know, whatever. I mean, that kind of neighborly sharing of resources, sharing of of um, um, uh, of planning and all that, like that, that's extremely important when there's adversity, and and um, and we do it instinctively. I, uh, Sebastian, <clears throat> I loved your uh, point that you made that the book could have easily been called Community rather than Tribe, but no one would have bought it. What are what are some of the what are some of the characteristics of those communities that are the ones that 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 have that feeling in other words again as as you as you did your research with the uh, warriors returning from battle you know there's some places where they could come back to and be welcomed in and and other places where the the PTSD really set in worse than ever and in fact it was made worse by the nature of the community to whom they returned so what are some characteristics of those strong communities that are able to um you know that are able to 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 to, to weather the storm Bring those people in, whether it's bond together after a, a fire or, a, or an earthquake, or or welcome in their their soldiers who've been away. Yeah, well, I mean, it's known that the, the more affluent the society, the higher the rates of suicide, the higher the rates of, of depression, and and the higher the rates of PTSD. And the poorer the society, the lower the rates of those things. Um, so, the theory to explain those sort of bizarre numbers, right, sort of counterintuitive. Why would suicide go up with affluence? Well, the reason is that individualization goes up with affluence. The wealthier we are, the more individualistic our lives tend to be. So now you're living by yourself, or you're, you're, you and your family are living in a single-family home and don't know your neighbors. That's unheard of for most of human history, right? That's complete insanity. We're not wired for that. So if you're the poorer the society, the less likely you are to be able to live in those, quote, fortunate circumstances. So when soldiers come back, um, well, okay, in Afghanistan and Iraq, there's very, very, very little discussion among the Afghan and Iraqi soldiers of PTSD. I mean, apparently they're really quite puzzled by the whole idea. And I think one of the reasons is that they, um, they are, most of them, returning to close, cohesive neighborhoods or villages or societies, these are agrarian countries, right? And they're, they're returning to close, cohesive communities where um, they are buffered, that, that their role in the community buffers them from their psychological problems. Um, 
And, you know, you, you, you see that in this country with rates of depression. Um, again, as affluence goes up, depression goes up. People are prone to, I mean, some people are prone to depression. The more of a community they, they, community they have around them, the, the easier time they're going to have in fighting, in fighting off the effects of depression. Well, likewise with PTSD. Are, are we, are there some things that we can do to be better tribesmen to welcome in other people? I mean, in, in, in the case of, of someone that's returning from war, that's trying to adapt back into society, what can we do to, um, to help that? acclimatization uh, you know i don't think there's a simple thing you can do i mean i mean if you're if you live in a town that doesn't have much communal connection there's not much you can do about that um i mean it's great to, to have a potluck dinner and welcome the guy home or the woman home you know whatever but that's a very transitory effect but really what helps people is to be needed by their community mm-hmm. and to be in a community where they have um uh where they have a sort of share shared values and shared shared concerns um that's very hard to find in america i mean my so my wife is the youngest of 12 her father was 55 when she was born he fought in world war ii and he came home he's the whole deal from north africa all the way through italy france all the way into austria uh in the infantry tough tough time right and he came home uh to his small town small small city and in the midwest and um with all six of his brothers, who'd also served, lived within a few blocks of him. And, and every, every male his age, almost every male his age, had probably served in one capacity or another. Maybe not in combat, but had served in the military. Um, did that help him? Yeah, of course it did. Like, I mean, he had, a, he had a group of people around him who had gone through a lot of what he had gone through. America, that's way less likely to happen in today's America. We're way more mobile. Um, people often live... Uh, in different states from where they were born, um, that's great, right? I mean, that's, there's a lot. There's a lot that's good about that. What's bad about it is that when people need to recover from trauma, it's going to be harder to do if they're living in a neighborhood of people they don't know and don't care about. You know, Sebastian, when I look at uh, the homeless population I, and look at their camps, I've got to imagine that there's quite a, a tribe that's built there for security. I mean, we could probably dial back, you know, time by looking at, at those small communities because they probably fill yeah. in all those slots that, that our, our ancestors held. Absolutely. I mean, a, a platoon in combat, I mean, I've been in quite a lot of combat um, with and without the U.S. military, but when I was with American soldiers, you know, a platoon is 30, 40 men in the case of the unit I was with. Um, it absolutely reproduced those small group dynamics, those very, very close bonds. I'm, I'm imagining an encampment of homeless people as well. I mean, I spoke with a woman... Uh, who survived cancer, and she she had been on a cancer ward for quite some time, and she mm-hmm. you know she was one of the lucky ones. She she survived, and she said, you know, we were so close on that, uh, you know, on that hospital floor. She said, now now I miss being sick. Mm-hmm. So even you know even in, in a hospital floor of people with the same illness or or facing death, like there is a very very powerful bond that's created, uh, that um that that can be missed, even though she was a luck the one of the lucky ones. She missed. She missed it. I, you know, I, lo- I live in New York City, and, and you know, after 
in New York, a very totally traumatized city, but there was that sort of feeling of, okay, we're all New Yorkers. Like, we're all black, white, rich, poor, doesn't matter. We're all in this together. So people now look back on those days right after 9-11 with a real nostalgia. Um, likewise, you know, Londoners who survived the Blitz, um, same things, a real nostalgia about how close everyone was. Well, I, I, I just heard your point loud and clear when – there isn't P- PTSD in communities that are small where they come back to and, and the soldier is nurtured, but coming back into a, uh, a place that, that you're anonymous and you're not really appreciated, that you end up with PTSD. So maybe it's not what happened to you, but what happens to you when you come back is the real key. And, and maybe that's part of the solution of being more, more compassionate, more empathetic to our, our returning people, uh, even though we're a huge tribe. Um, at 340 million, we need to act small uh, for certain things. Yeah, I mean, compassion and empathy are always good. I, I'm not sure they'll quite plug the gaps of of um, what's missing for people that aren't don't live in 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 a, com- in a functioning community. And again, by that I mean people who know their neighbors. Depend, they may not like their neighbors, but they know them and they depend on them. Um, and that's, I mean, understand that. Humans have adapted to survive trauma. If we hadn't adapted to it, we wouldn't exist. Um, trauma is traumatic, and, and, and PTSD is a, is a protective reaction. Um, it's physically and psychologically protective of us after trauma. But it's, it's very transitory. I mean, uh, you know, th- that, that trauma reaction lasts some weeks, some months, maybe a year. Um, when you get long-term trauma reaction, the problem might not be the trauma that happens, but the fact that people are trying to recover from that um, outside, of, individually, outside of community. Um, they've traumatized, they've done experiments where they traumatize a rat, and they'll put the rat in a cage by itself, they'll traumatize another rat, and put that rat in a cage with other rats. The rat that was traumatized and put with other rats, within a week, its behavior was indistinguishable from the non-traumatized rats. The rat that was put by itself, traumatized and put by itself, never recovered from the trauma. And I think that's some of what you're seeing in people coming back to the kind of modern individualistic society that we've created. AJW. Circle, circling back to running just for a second, Sebastian, one of the yeah. things that is so um, poignant about our sport is that, that, that there is a fair amount of trauma in running 100 miles and running 200 miles. And in, and in sharing that trauma with other people, um, I think of, oddly enough, some of my fondest, fondest memories of running 100-mile races are when the uh, going got the toughest. Uh, and indeed, perhaps even when the desire to quit became so strong and powerful that, that the only thing I wanted to do was not quit. Um, in your experience, have you seen that as something that's another component of uh, healthful societies, of, of places that, that are there for their, their own? Yeah, I mean, I think it's extremely healthy where you, where you have people who are competing with each other, but, the, but they're competing at something which is so monstrously painful and difficult that the real adversity is actually within yourself. And then a real bond is formed. I mean, often you'll see in boxing matches that the, um, the fighters will hug afterwards because they're both facing, they're facing each other, but they're also facing the, all of their own worst fears and terrors and pain and all that stuff. And um, so, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I know from my own running experience, I mean, a really hard, I mean, 
100 miles, I mean, it must be very, very painful, but uh, the mile is pretty painful. You know, I mean, oh, you yeah. know, shorten the distance. Oh, yeah. You increase the, <laughs> you increase the intensity. I ran, you know, I wound up running 412 for the mile, and my God, uh, the, <laughs> those are from some painful seconds, right? But the bond between everyone, after, as they're all lurching around across the, you know, uh, on the other side of the finish line, staggering around trying to get, you know, like keep their feet, I mean, the bond is incredible. And I, 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 um, I'm fortunate to know a um, former world-class miler named Jerry Van Dyke, uh, who was also a war reporter and worked in Afghanistan a lot. And he, you know, he was in the heyday of Steve Ovette, Sebastian Coe, and all those guys. And, and he, and he, um, he ran 350-something. I can't remember what. But any, at any rate, he said that in his last race, before he retired in his late 20s, he lined up with Steve Ovette and some, uh, some of those world-class guys that, and Steve Ovette, who was a superb athlete, right, an incredible, incredible athlete, uh, right before the gun went off, he pumped his fist in the air and, um, and said, okay, gentlemen, let's make it a good one. And what he was signaling there, I mean, you know, I think he won the race. I mean, these guys were competing against each other. But in, I imagine in Steve Ovette's mind, even more important was the dignity of the sport and the connection between all those men who were competing with each other, the connection that they also had because they were engaged in this incredibly difficult, painful thing, and he was honoring that and honoring, honoring the, the, the other runners in a, in a way that I, you know, I find really moving. I think there's something about that that is very, very compelling to people and very healthy for them. Hey, Sebastian, I'm going to speculate that the pain experienced in a 412 mile is comparable to the pain in a 24-hour 100. It's just condensed in your <laughs> one mile and spread yeah. out over the 100 yeah. miles. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, w um, they're just, I, I think in a 100-mile race, there's more opportunities to give up. In a, a four-minute <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like if you have one failure, one failure of, of, of heart, you know, then you're out, and um, uh, and in a four-minute race, you're you know, like it's a little easier to just um, not think about quitting for four minutes, and then it's over. Yeah. And uh, um, one, you know, one of the, I mean, even a regular length marathon, 26.2 miles, even that is, I know it's a short race by you guys' standards, but it's a long damn race. And I I ran a. 221 when I was young, and, Oof, and I, I got to say that that experience really stands out in my mind as a pretty much a straight-up horror show. But I, you know, I, I mean, it was so painful. I, I mean, it's so unspeakably painful. Um, but it's also one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. Hey, Sebastian, we need to get you into running some longer distances. Sounds like you'd fit right in. I listen. I would love to. I, you know, I, I actually started um, boxing in my 50s and. And I found that to be as 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 just in a cardio, cardiovascular level as stressful and difficult and painful as um, as as running the mile. I, I couldn't believe how hard boxing was. Forget about getting hit. That's not even forget. That doesn't even matter. I mean, just like, the stress on your cardiovascular system was really through the roof. But I, I you know, I would love to. Uh, I would love to do that. I have a killer case of plantar fasciitis right now that I don't know what to, I don't know how to get rid of it and it's sort of crippled me for the last few months I gotta I gotta figure this out or I'll never be running another step well we've got a we've got a few ideas for you and we've had a few episodes <laughs> on, on on that subject so we'll we'll pass that along off offline here 
But we have a few oh, races great. that would be perfect for oh, you yeah. that uh, we, we'd love to, to get you involved <laughs> with. Hey, one Listen, if I can get back in shape, I would, I would love to do that. That would be, I haven't run seriously in, in quite a while, and, uh, and it would feel really, really good. Good. Well, Andy, Andy Jones-Wilkins is a coach, and he lives out on the East Coast. We may need to make a closer connection there, huh, Andy? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> hey, um, yeah, no, definitely. I'm, I'm open to it for sure. Hey, Sebastian, there was one part in the book that I, I recall that I was really, really intrigued with, and that is the whole idea of cheaters. In a tribe, oh, yeah. cheaters were almost put considered more or, or at the same level of somebody that committed murder. If you were a cheater, you were either banned from the tribe or in some cases executed. And I think that we see some of that starting to come into our sport of, of trail running and ultra running. But uh, I think you also talked about in, in society today, you know, the whole idea of um, the Wall Street bailout and that whole thing, how those cheaters... Nothing happened to them, they right? They seemed to prosper. Yeah, they still got their bonuses, and they didn't even get indicted. So I, I'm curious um, to hear more about that and your thoughts on cheating. Yeah, the the idea of cheating, it, it's a real threat to the survival of the group and um, or to the, the, the value system that, that, make, that, that, um, that, the, that the group sort of depends on. Um, cowardice is a form of cheating. And on the cowardice on the battlefield, right? I mean, so if you, you know, sort of hang back behind the rock while everyone else is getting shot at, <laughs> you're, 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 you're effectively protecting your interests at the expense of, of other people. And until quite recently in Western armies, the cowardice was, the punishment for cowardice was execution. Um, stealing food in a situation where there isn't enough food to go around or water or what have you also, like you're, you're, you're depriving other people of the chance of surviving, a chance to survive, and and you're maximizing your own chance to survive, and and diminishing theirs, and that gets punished very very swiftly in in any kind of healthy group. One of the strange things about modern society in America right now is that you could have a relatively small group of people, a dozen guys, I think it was all men too, um, a dozen guys or so in the financial industry that crash the economy. I mean they they cost. The U.S. economy, ultimately, the calculations are something like $14 trillion. Wow. An enormous amount of money, right? Um, the equivalent crime committed in a small-scale hunter-gatherer society by an individual would result in immediate punishment for that person, which would probably expulsion or death. Then what's strange in this society is that the guys that did that to us um, you know, not, absolutely nothing happened. I mean, there wasn't even a, there wasn't even a trial. Um, no one was even indicted. Uh, it, it, just extraordinary that we would overlook that. And you know, the, you know, five thousand people died because of because of the recession. I mean, they they, they know the, the epidemiologists know the suicide rate gets is affected by the unemployment rate. As soon as the recession hit, five thousand pe- people that statistically statistically should not have died in that following year or two um, did die by their own hands. Um, because of unemployment. And so it's, you know, it is absolutely a crime. It's a crime with, with real life and death consequences. Hey, can we talk a bit about rite of passage and how important it is to 
then escalate your position in a tribe or a society with rites of passages. I know in, in our trail running, we have some rite of passages, and we actually even wear a belt buckle or a shirt to prove that we have passed this on this journey. So we may have a 50K or a 50-mile distance or now welcome to the 100-mile club that's really an unspoken club, but you can feel it when you're around it. Um, can you just talk a bit about rite of passages and how important or, or how not important it is? What's your opinion? Well, I think all societies and all, all groups, um, most groups, have, have those, either rites of passage, either officially or unofficially. Um, in a lot of small-scale hunter-gatherer societies, there are male initiation rites that test young men and make sure that they're, um, they're, they're mature and ready for hunting and for war, which are both very, very dangerous uh, endeavors that other people, where, where other people are depending on you to do the right thing, to not be a coward, basically. So these initiation rites, it's a sort of vetting process to make sure that, that you're not going to war with a guy who actually is going to turn and run, that uh, does not value the group. Um, but in less dramatic circumstances, um, the sort of color-coded belts and martial arts and the different distances that people have, people have run and all kinds, I mean, whatever. I mean, there's every, every group has to figure out what means, they need some definition of what makes you part of the group, and if you don't meet that definition, you're not part of the group. And every group, that, every meaningful group has to figure out where that borderline is. And once you've passed that borderline, it feels very good to have something that symbolizes that, and it's a signal to other people that you're one of them, they're one of you, you can count on each other. Um, my anthropology teacher in college, uh, Lincoln Kaiser, did it, his, he studied in the 1960s, he was in Chicago, and he studied a, a street gang called the Vice Lords. And it, the vice was not, it didn't mean bad behavior in the sense that they meant it, meant vice-like vice grip like if you were in the vice lords it had it had that kind of grip on you and and um so the the line denoting vice lord or not vice lord was a very very bright line and um the and there, there was a sort of rite of passage um that that brought you in and meant you're now a vice lord and once you were a vice lord you had you owed your absolute loyalty to that group and if another vice lord was getting attacked you had to go help them, even if it meant you might get killed. And if you didn't help them, you weren't a vice lord, and you were kicked out in, in a pretty brutal way. So, so the, the, these rites of passage are very, very important in figuring out who's in and who's out. <clears throat> Sebastian, uh, before we wrap up, I want to circle back to the the Native Americans, and and I know you did a significant amount of work on those in in the context of the of your book Tribe and and your master's work on the on the running. I feel like for for us long distance runners in particular, there's something. I mean, on the one hand, there's the romantic ideal of the of the Native American uh, long distance messenger runners and so forth. Uh, but on the other hand, there's something real, uh, really powerful for uh, all of us in sort of the um, mainstream world of of running and life that 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 we really feel there's something simple about what we do, something uh, grounded in just putting one foot in front of the other. You you hear all the time about how running is just this this thing that we can do. All you need are a pair of shoes and a pair of shorts, and you can go. I mean, it seems like some of the some of the most simple 
organizations of people, some of the most simple communities are those places that that value uh, those the you know self-reliance and confidence and resilience and grit and all these things that are sort of buzzwords these days have been part and parcel of those cultures for for centuries. Does that does that ring true? And is there is there a lesson not only for us as runners for but for us as people in that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, running is is the most elemental sport possible, and um, one of the things about it is that. Um, Stone Age cultures, Stone Age societies, early human societies needed runners because it's the it's the fastest, efficient form of communication and travel. I mean, before the horse came along, um, I mean, it takes days to walk 100 miles, and a well-conditioned athlete can run 100 miles in one day, right? So it made it made it made hunting and warfare and all these other things. It made it 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 made people way more effective at them. So, so, so tribal societies needed runners, like like they, like like they they needed women giving birth to children, and they needed old people telling stories about the, the way to live, you know, whatever. I mean, there are a lot of different roles in a small scale society. Well, runners was one of them, and um, in addition, the act of running makes you physically feel really good. Um, the the endorphins that are released. The sort of feel-good chemicals that are released in your bloodstream are—it's um, a real kind of high—and and so I, I think what's sort of wired into us is this idea that if you're a really good, if you're a really dedicated runner, not only are you making yourself feel good, but on some level, I think there is a sort of ancient memory of, as you said, the the, the messenger, the you know. That, that, you know, my community needs someone like me to be able to run very, very quickly. And I think that's sort of wired into us, as is defense. You know, I mean, it's, it's not all running. Some of it's standing and fighting, and that, that's also wired into us. So those sort, of pri- those sort of primordial tasks, I think they resonate very deeply with people, um, and they're particularly important to the kinds of sort of gritty communities that we originated in. But I think that those those vestigial ideas are are still with us and are very and resonate very very powerfully with us when we do those kinds of things. I love how you bring it back to anthropologically back to to our needs. You know, we have some like AJW that's fast on on his feet. He can go, he can go out there and hunt the antelope, and and then you need somebody like Scott and I that are <laughs> that are you know slower and and can carry that antelope back you know that, we, that's we, get, we get there before it spoils right. and we yeah. can dress the animal yeah, right we're, we're, yeah. we're slow and strong but we're useful we have our spot and and so i just i, yeah. I love that stuff yeah. and i remember when we were we were talking about persistent hunting that it takes about on average four hours for a hunter to chase down and to, uh, exhaust that one animal you know fleshing them out of the out of the herd and keep chasing and the pressure on that one animal till that animal overheats and, and picks up and, and well, lays down and then we pick them up. And then I start thinking about golfers. And I think about the small group for a foursome, a small tribe, going out there and swinging, hitting, chasing, collecting. And that takes about four hours. Hmm. And then I think about what's the average time for a marathon. And the big bell curve is about four hours. And the, there's this magic right. four hour thing that happens that I that I think does tie back into our DNA and feels right, feels good, feels like five hours is too long, three hours wasn't enough. It's just a good spot, and I think we are attracted to that. Um, do you see that? 
yeah, I think I had never thought of it that way, but I think that's a really interesting insight. <laughs> um, you, you know, I should say about humans is that one of the one of the most important adaptations as we evolved um, uh, was losing our our body hair uh, and sweating. And so I know, you know what it did is it allowed us to perform at a very high level in uh, in a very hot environment. And I know, I mean, I have this, I have a dog, 60-pound dog. She's an amazing runner. I actually timed her on a bike once on a route that I know is exactly three miles. And she, um, even though she diverted to chase a squirrel at one point, she did those three miles in nine minutes, right? Wow. So she ran three consecutive three-minute miles without even thinking twice about it, right? Um, so obviously she can eat my lunch anytime <laughs> she wants as a runner, unless it's over about 75 degrees. And, you know, 75, 80 degrees, I go running with her. Like, I have to stop and, you know, walk with her. I mean, she can't do it. It's because she's covered in fur and she doesn't sweat. So think about the advantage that humans had uh, as we evolved on the plains of Africa, chasing antelope or, or any of the ungulates. Um, uh, I mean, that was, it gave, losing our body hair and sweating gave us this incredible advantage. And um, that was one of the, and walking upright, of course, and that was one of the things that really, that's one of the most important things that distinguishes humans from other social primates. Our last common ancestor with chimpanzees was 6 million years ago. And the, our, one of the foremost adaptations, we walk upright and, and we can sweat and we can function in very high heat. Yeah, we, we are really worthless as, as <laughs> by ourselves. I mean, we're soft. We have no claws, you know, fangs, none. And, and uh, this, this, we're not good tree climbers. There's no chance of us surviving without one another. That's right. I mean, we survive in groups or we don't survive at all. And one of the ways we survive in groups is by being very, very mobile. Um, and, and it's something that other, other primates are not. And um, uh, I, was, I was talking about this with a friend. Uh, so so what we, my wife and I have a 21-month-old baby girl, and we've never used a baby stroller. Like, you know, I have a sling, and we you know, carry her or whatever, and a friend of mine was sort of riding me about that, like, oh, come on, it's so hard, and she's, eventually she's going to be so big that you can't carry her. And I said, look, it makes no evolutionary sense that there's a period where a baby is too big to be carried but too small to walk. Like, that makes no sense that human communities were pinned down by babies that were, like, two and a half to four years old, right, because they, they, they're too big to carry and they can't walk very far. And, and, you know, the truth is a three-year-old child can walk all day long if they need to. You know, we just don't make them do that. But, but humans, even very, very young children, are extremely mobile, and that really makes us different from other primates. How did your argument land with the, <laughs> <laughs> with the listener? I, I think they were sort of annoyed by it, but I, I said, you know, the, I, the, I, I pointed to a photograph that I'd seen on social media. It was about a, an amazing book. I um, can't remember the name. It was about a, and it's a, a, a journalist who spent some time in the um, Amazon basin uh, with a a tribe that had never been contacted before by by Western society, and there was a photograph of this small group of people on the move, right? And so the the um, you know every person in the group was carrying a pack. Uh, the women were carrying very young children, and the men were carrying weapons. And in that group, there were children who were maybe three or four years old who not only were walking but were also carrying packs hmm. everyone was carrying stuff and this this group was on the move 
and, you know, single file through the jungle. And I was really struck by that. I was like, you know, that'd be great for American children at age three to, like, you know, have to have to walk and have to carry stuff. That's how we evolved. It's good for us. Gosh, and we do just the opposite. We mm-hmm. protect the youth now from any hardship or hard, <laughs> hard or struggle yeah. and, and then expect them. And then give know, them a trophy. <laughs> give them a trophy for, for enduring yeah. the elements that they never faced. And then uh, yeah, yeah. launch them into society and say good luck with uh, any adversity that now comes your way. Yeah, no, it's absolutely it's terrible. But I know, you know, I was I've been in Afghanistan a lot. I started going there in the in the um, mid nineties, and you know, any any agricultural sort of third world developing world society like that, children are working from a very young age. I mean, yeah, Af- you know, you see these little boys, you know, five year old boys helping their fathers split firewood or repair cars or whatever it is their dad does like you know by age five the boys are and the girls are of course are helping their mothers um from a very very young age and i and i think in in an evolutionary sense that's that's the norm and it's probably quite good for children hey one last thing uh before we wrap up and we appreciate your time um we're talking to sebastian younger uh that wrote the book tribe um but uh one of the things that i want to get to is you mentioned in your book that belonging to a, cri- a tribe requires sacrifice, and that that sacrifice gives back way more than it costs. Do you mind talking about why a tribe requires sacrifice? Well, yeah, any group of people needs all of the individuals in it to prioritize the needs of the group over their own personal needs. Uh-huh. If you don't, it's not a group. It's just a collection of individuals. And so that becomes the the prevailing ethos um, in any group that is facing a threat to its survival, uh, a, a, a platoon in combat, um, a group of people on our life rafts, um, whatever whatever it is, hunter gatherers surviving in our evolutionary past, you know, whatever that ability to um, to put the, the interests of the of the group foremost in your mind. Um, not only does it allow other people to survive, your own survival is dependent on that group surviving. And so, ironically, if you, when you let go of your own individual interest to some degree, you're actually promoting your own survival in, in a counterintuitive way. Yeah, and, and we've had a, a chance to, well, we've all been to races and watched finish lines and, and watched the big gaps between some runners on these long-distance races. And I mean gaps of of three or four come in together, and then there's five minutes where nobody comes in, and all of a sudden six people come together. It's like we unite and we join arms and get through the adversity together and lean on one another for when things are tough and when things are good. The person leading feels a sense of responsibility of bringing their group through. There's, there's just a lot of cohesiveness that happens during this adversity and explained quite a bit in your book which is a fantastic listen or read however you take in your content and you think about all those other people that are volunteering during the race you know the aid station workers the the um the the pacers the 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 course sweeps i mean they're out there sacrificing and doing what they need to do and and they're getting giving back but they're also getting back i think Mm -hmm. in in spades um, hey, Sebastian, thank you for joining us. The book is called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. If you haven't read it, you've got to get this book. I've listened to it twice on Audible. As have I, <laughs> and I have recommended it a number of yep. times to people because it's just so, so good and thought-provoking, and it applies to, to everyone out there. If they're in existence, they're a 
part of a tribe somewhere and being able to identify where you fit, how important it is, what your role is in that tribe, is, and, and how to bring others along in that tribe and make sure they have a role. It's just really important to, to read to be a true community. You have to read Tribe. This would be a great book to, to send out to your, your friends and family right before Thanksgiving and have a discussion over Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, there, there's a <laughs> tribe right there. That Thanksgiving yeah. table is a tribe, no doubt. You can you can get the book uh, everywhere. It's on Audible, it's on Amazon, it's on all, all the bookstores. You can find out more about Sebastian at his website, sebastianyounger.com. Last name is J-U-N-G-E-R. We'll link that to the show notes. There's also some, uh, I, I saw on the website, there's some speaking engagements and other events that he's participating in. A lot of good information at his website. And he's a runner, and, and he's looking for... And he's a, committed to a, a long-distance run. A, a trail run. As soon as he gets rid of this plantar fasciitis, which we're going to coach gonna, him through, no problem. We've got the resources, Sebastian. <laughs> we'll turn all of our right. knowledge towards you. Hey, thank you, guys. I really enjoyed talking to you. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much.